0: As we just prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Our Father, we have already spoken to you in our prayers. We've sung our prayers to you this morning. We have heard uh, the story of your work of grace and Natalie's life. We have worshipped you with uh, the resources that you've given to us. And now as we come to that point uh, in this service when we specifically hear you speak to us. Our Father, we acknowledge that the voice that we need to hear every week, every day, more desperately than any other voice is yours. We live in a a world where we are drowning in a sea of voices. They come to us from the radio. They come to us from the television. They come to us over the internet. They come to us from our neighbors. They come to us at the water cooler in the workplace. They come to us from our own past, Father. The inner voices. We pray that superseding and drowning out all of them, what will become incredibly clear in the next little while is the voice of God. Jesus, you were called the word of God. Will you speak? Will you speak deep into our hearts and affect us as only your words can? Speak, Lord, for your servants listen today in Jesus' name. We didn't score very well last night. How many of you have seen the movie Camelot (laughs) sometime back? Well, actually, not all that better than last night. Okay, (laughs) so here's the (laughs) storyline. It kind of begins with a wedding ceremony of King Arthur and a beautiful queen Guinevere. And uh, his vision, idyllic vision for this place called Camelot includes a group of people called the Knights of the Round Table. Men who will be noted for their valor and for their bravery, but also for their virtue as well. And so the call goes out over the whole kingdom. And one of the first men to respond is a dashing debonair Frenchman by the name of Lancelot Delac. And initially his uh, somewhat arrogant manner really brushes off Queen Guinevere and she doesn't like him at all. But at one critical turning point in the movie when he has almost killed uh, uh, a competitor in a jousting uh, event. Launcelot kneels over him and prays and and the queen watching that her whole heart begins to melt and unfortunately that begins to turn the tide towards uh, in the two of them falling in love. But of course it is something that was forbidden. Uh, now Arthur had a nephew named Mordred. Uh, he was a cynical man who didn't have any time for all this virtue and he sneered at the king and his vision of the knights of the round table and in order to reveal uh, that his cynicism in fact would triumph over virtue and what not. He managed to persuade the king to leave the palace for one day. And of course uh, Lancelot and Guinevere cannot resist the temptation. They spend the night together and that is high treason and so she has to die. And so the king as the law requires sentences her to burning at the stake. But as one of the songs in that movie show he chooses 5 a.m. in the morning for the queen to burn. Hoping, of course, that Lancelot would come and still save his beloved queen. Which, of course, is exactly what happens. Now, all of that can kind of appeal to the romanticism that lurks deep within us. That says, yeah, it's nice that the dashing debonair man gets the beautiful woman while the righteous but rather dull king kind of is left to suffer, you know. But it leaves a bad taste in the mouth as well. Because the the vision of Camelot has gone to pieces. And the movie ends by this king telling a, a little boy wistfully there once was a place called Camelot. While presumably Guinevere and Lancelot are enjoying life together. That's the kind of mood that Paul sets up for us as we approach the passage of scripture. In our study of the book of Romans in chapter 3 verse 21 today. But for the benefit of those who might be visiting us today, and just by way of refresher for the rest of us, let me quickly cover what we've what we've learned so far in the preceding four sermons in Romans. <clears throat> Paul begins in the first 17 verses of the book uh, to outline what he calls the gospel, the good news. And we discovered five things about the gospel. It was promised beforehand in the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The gospel was concerning Jesus Christ raised from the dead as powerful Christ and Lord. It was a gospel for the whole world. It was a power of God for salvation. And the word salvation means deliverance, bringing out into a large place the kind of freedom that Natalie talked about. All of that is included in salvation. And the gospel was also a revelation of God's righteousness that we appropriate by faith. And the righteousness of God meant at least three things. It meant who God is in himself. It meant God's actions in salvation history. And God bringing you and me into a right relationship with him. All those streams of thought are tied up in there. But even though this is good news, most people didn't want it. Because they didn't recognize it as good news. And the reason they didn't recognize it as good news was, they didn't know the bad news. The condition that they were in before a holy God. And so Paul goes on from there and before he amplifies this righteousness by faith, he has to spell out the bad news first of all. And in the last two sermons we learned that the whole of humanity divided into three broad groups of people. Uh, what we might call the immoral Gentiles and Gentiles were everybody who were not Jews in the first century. Uh, the moral Gentiles, the clean living people who helped others and what not. As well as God's own chosen people, the Israelites. That all three of them, all three groups, in other words all of humanity were under the wrath of God and headed for sentencing on the day of judgment. And Paul concludes this section with the last verses that Stevens left us with last week. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That is the condition of the whole world. The idea of the mouth being stopped is, we are in a law court, and we can't say anything in our defense. We are captives to sin, powerless to escape, headed for destruction. Every bit as tied to the stake as Queen Guinevere was. Guilty of high treason and awaiting burning. That's the bad news. And then come two of the most magnificent words in the New Testament. But now. In the study guide I've listed several other but now's in the New Testament. Look at it. But now something happens and let me tell you it isn't Lancelot. And it isn't Camelot. (laughs) It's someone infinitely superior to Lancelot. And to usher in something far more magnificent a community than the knights of the round table. And it's something that does not leave a bad taste in the mouth. (laughs) And so Paul picks up that theme. He says, but now what? But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Paul's picking up that theme of righteousness. Remember the last of the five elements of the gospel that I summarized for you. It is a revelation of God's righteousness that we appropriate by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is now picking up that theme. And the first thing he says about it is in his, his relationship to the law. By the law, he refers to the Old Testament, the law that God gave through Moses for Israel. And he says two things about it. First of all, he says this righteousness from God is apart from the law. And that word apart, the way it is used elsewhere in the New Testament means having nothing to do with. This righteousness from God has nothing to do with the law. Because if it did, you see, only one subgroup of people who had the law, The Jewish people would have access to the righteousness. And as we learned last week, it didn't do any good to them. Because all the law does is to show us our true condition. It can't clean us up, it only reveals the dirt. But while it is apart from the law, and therefore accessible to everybody, at the same time, he says, to which the law and the prophets testify... Though it has nothing to do with the law, it is totally continuous with the law. And that's very important to correct a very common error. Many people kind of think like this, that because of Israel's failure to be the people of God, and therefore image Christ and God God to the world, that somehow God's first plan failed. His plan A blew up in his face. And so God had to hurriedly put together a plan called plan B. And this plan B was Jesus Christ and Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. He says this righteousness from God that is in Jesus Christ was always part of God's plan. God only has one plan A. It's all part of the big picture. Next week, it'll become a little bit clearer as we begin to look at the life of Abraham and David and how they fit into this. But for today, he's simply telling us there's no plan B. It's plan A all the time. It always had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what he is underlining here. And then having said that, he now goes on to underline a couple of other things. He said, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He said, well, he's already talked about that the last two weeks. Why is he repeating it here? Well, he's repeating it here, not as bad news, but as good news. So let me remind you again. What was that fundamental sin? We learned that two or three weeks ago. That the fundamental sin of all humanity is that we have exchanged the glory of God... For the glory of created things. And God's glory we saw nothing other than God's total sufficiency. The beauty of his moral perfections. Everything that he is. All that he promises to be for us. And so every time we look to some created thing. Whether it's a person, a relationship or a thing. To give us what only God can give. We are committing the sin of exchange glory. And he says, all have sinned and fall short. And the tense in the original is that we keep on falling short. Not just once, not just the past. But we are regularly and continually and repeatedly exchanging the glory of God for the glory of created things. And he says, all of us. And by all, can I spell it out? It means Caucasian. It means Afro-American. It means a brown Indian like me. It means like red Indians in North America. It means like Hispanics. It means Orientals. It means Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Protestants, Catholics, Agnostics, Atheists, Universalists and New Agers. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, the good news is, because it's not bad news, it's good news. It's available to all. It's available to all. (laughs) So there need be nothing in your background, religious or liturgical or moral, that needs to disqualify you from this. That's what he says. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no difference for all of sin. If we would only acknowledge that our real condition... It's like in the law courts with our hands over our mouth, speechless before God, nothing to say in our defense, tied to the stake like Guinevere, headed for burning under the wrath of God. If we will acknowledge that, then this this righteousness is freely available to us. Now, having said that, Paul then goes on in one absolutely packed sentence, which I'm going to unpack almost phrase by phrase for us to explain this magnificent phrase called the righteousness of God. As it applies to us and then as it applies to God. First of all, he says, we are justified freely by his grace. Justification is the language of the law courts, which is where we were left last week. Charged before God as having fallen short of the glory of God. Convicted by the very law that we thought we were going to obey to make ourselves good enough for God. Nothing to say on our behalf. And all of a sudden in that law court, but now God says, you are free. You are righteous. You are acquitted. How come? Because of Christ. And He will keep explaining that for us. That's what justification means. It is the institution of you and me into a radically new relationship with God. Because He sees us as He sees Christ. He says it is also freely. We've been justified freely. (laughs) Elsewhere in the New Testament, the usage of this word would suggest the idea of without cause. Like when they say Jesus was hated without cause. There was nothing in Christ that deserved the kind of treatment he got. This righteousness, this justification, he said, is free. It is apart from anything within you and me. God didn't look at you and me and find something good in there. And therefore, he says, you are justified totally freely without any cause in you and me. And then he goes even further and he says, it's by grace, justified freely. The motivation for all of this, it's not within us, it's all within God. And that particular thing within God that allows him to justify us freely, on the basis of what Christ has done, is this thing called grace. Get a handle on grace. And the best way to get a handle on grace is to contrast it with justice and mercy. Many years ago, reading a, when my children were teenagers, I was teaching a class here on teenagers, uh, parenting teenagers, and a book by uh, Don Kessler uh, told a story that illustrates this perfectly. He talked about a time when his 16 year old son was driving the car. You know, a parent came in one day and, and had to report that he'd been in an accident. Justice would mean that the father would say, I take away your privileges. You can't drive anymore. You're not ready to drive yet. He would be just in doing that. Mercy is. To withhold from justice gives the person what they deserve. Mercy does not give them what they deserve. And so the father could have said, it's okay. Too bad, you got to pay the consequences for this. But you can still drive the car. But what this dad actually did was say to him, you didn't know this son, but long ago I made a commitment that the first mistake you make, I'll pay the fine for it. That was mercy. Sorry, mercy to grace. Justice gives you what you deserve. Mercy withholds what you deserve. Grace gives you what you do not deserve. We are justified without cause in us, totally caused by the grace of Christ, who not only withholds what we deserve, he gives us what we do not deserve. But because it didn't cost us anything, doesn't mean it didn't cost God anything. And that takes us to the next phrase. We are justified freely by grace through the redemption. That came by Jesus Christ. If justification is the language of the law courts. Redemption is the language of the slave market. Of the um, condemned criminal. Of the prisoners of war. In the 2nd century and 1st century BC. This was from the primary connotations of redemption. Where these people. People in these conditions were freed. By the paying of a price. And Christ's death here is seen. Not just as the basis of a law court declaration. But also. Uh, The price paid for your redemption and my redemption. Now it would also have a beautiful Old Testament background for people who were aware of that. 1500 years before Paul was writing this. The people of God, the Jewish people, even before they were constituted the people of God as Hebrew slaves in Egypt. God raised up a man named Moses who was to become their lawgiver. And he uh, was able to Finally persuade Pharaoh and break that rebellious king's heart by a series of ten plagues. And the last one you might recall was when the angel of death came and killed every firstborn male in all the house of Egypt. And he had told his own, the Hebrew slaves, if you want to protect your firstborns, you have to do this. You got to take a lamb and you got to take the blood of that perfect lamb and you got to mark that blood upon the doorpost. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. By the way, that's the origin of the, of the Jewish celebration of the Passover. The redemption language applied to Christ's work is Paul's way of saying that in Jesus' death on the cross, God is working out a whole new exodus from a slavery that is much worse than the slavery of Egypt, uh, in Egypt. This is the slavery of sin that holds us in bondage. And he constitutes us a people of God, not just one particular ethnic subgroup, but all of us into the people of God. Justification, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And then a third picture. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. If justification is the language of the law courts and redemption is the language of the market, of slave market, sacrifice of atonement is the language of the temple. And so let me give you some background again for that. After God redeemed his people from Egypt in the slavery, he gave them instructions on to how to build the tabernacle, which was a tent in which worship was to take place. Now, this tent was divided into many parts, but right near the center were the two most important parts. One was called the holy place and then inside that the most holy place. In the holy place, only the priests could come and do their regular work of sacrifices and whatnot. But separated from the holy place was this most holy place. Inside which was a wooden box completely covered with hammered gold and with two golden angels on top of it, all made of one piece. Inside that box was the, uh, amongst other things, was the uh, two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. This was called the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most sacred occultic objects, which represented the very presence of God. And into that most holy place, no priest could go. Only the high priest could go, and he could go only once a year. And only that once a year, he could go with the blood of an unblemished animal on the day of atonement. And he would then sprinkle the blood on this mercy seat, as it was called. And he would come on out and they would lay their hands upon a goat called the scapegoat, which is where we get our English word scapegoat from. And that goat would be sent out to die. Symbolically, it was an atonement, which was the covering or the forgiveness of the corporate sin of Israel. In this symbolic act. Of the death of a substitute and the transfer of that sins to the scapegoat. What. Paul is saying is in using the language I mean so rich is the work of Christ he has to illustrate it in so many different ways law law court language pronounced free (laughs) redemption language set free from the grip of sin and now temple language where he says Jesus has become all four things he has first of all become the mercy seat the place where God meets us secondly he himself is our high priest thirdly his blood is the sacrifice And fourthly, he's the scapegoat who takes away the sin. All these four separate things in the Old Covenant were all blended together in the person of Jesus. And God put him forth as a sacrifice of atonement. Justified, redeemed, atoned for. And you know it's not over yet. Because there's one other critical component. All the more critical because it is out of fashion in scholarly circles these days. Because you see this word translated as sacrifice of atonement Actually, it's only a single word in the original, which, is, which has this archaic word called propitiation. Most of us have never heard of it, let alone pronounce it. You will find it in the King James Version. It is a very important word theologically, and so I need to explain it for you. You see, propitiation carries with it more than... Atonement carries with it the idea of covering. It comes from the Hebrew word kafar. From, that's why they call it the word Yom Kippur, or the day of covering. But propitiation carries with it the idea of appeasement of someone that's angry. You know, you know somebody in your life is angry with you. You've got to find some ways of how do I calm this person down. That's called appeasing the person. Well, God's holiness has, has an anger dimension to it, which requires appeasing. Because you see, you look at King Arthur and back to our camelot and you say, Well, that was very nice of you. King was very noble of you. But listen, you're the king. What happened to your ideals? This was high treason that was committed by your queen. How can you just simply arrange for her to be rescued by this man just because you feel nice about her? That's another thing that leaves you a bad taste in the mouth. You know what? God was open to the same charge. Because if you read the Old Testament, you will find some of the key leaders of Israel. Committed sins that, according to God's own law, deserved capital punishment. And he didn't do it. Moses, for example, their great lawgiver, was guilty of murder. Deliberate murder. God didn't kill. Then David, Israel's greatest king, was guilty of planned adultery and murder. God didn't kill. So I guess superficially he could be open to the same charge that King Arthur was. You're getting wimpy God. What happened to your holiness? What happened to your righteousness? I'm not making it up. You'll see it's in the text. Therefore not only did human beings need to be justified before a holy God. A holy God needed to be justified before human beings. And That's exactly what happens. He goes on to say he did this. Meaning he set forth Christ as a propitiation. Twice it says here. He did it to demonstrate his justice. He did it to demonstrate his justice. In two senses. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. There you go. (laughs) And at the present time, you and I are continually falling short of the glory of God. What allows God who is zealous for his glory to overlook sins that exchange his glory? Both in the past and the present. (laughs) It's because of Jesus. That's right. The same death on the cross... On the basis of which, in law court testimony, we could be pronounced free. Hallelujah! The same Jesus Christ, death on the cross, who in redemption language has set us free from the slavery of sin. The same Jesus Christ, whose death was uh, the scapegoat, the mercy seat, the sacrificial atonement, and the high priest, all in one. The same blood of Jesus Christ was also a propitiation that satisfied the wrath. Of a holy God. Let me give you an illustration. So, and it ends by saying what? So that He can be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, in, the, in our first sabbatical over ten years ago, uh, I did watch a bit of daytime TV. No, not the kind of stuff she warned us against, but it was the time of uh, O.J. Simpson's uh, shenanigans. Remember the trial? You know, we've got a chance to watch. It. And every afternoon over lunch, it catch up a little bit what was happening there. And I still remember when the verdict was finally announced. Like many people, it was just a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. They justified the sinner, but they were not just. Nicole Simpson's parents would have known that. Now, several years later, on my second sabbatical, I watched another one, Scott Peterson, who was charged with killing his wife, Lacey Peterson, and her unborn son. When the verdict came, this time it was guilty. This time the jury was just, but they couldn't justify the sinner. In one case, they justified the sinner, but were no longer just. In the second case, they were just, but couldn't justify the sinner. God's dilemma was, how do I be both just and justify the sinner? And what was impossible for human juries was made possible for a holy God because of Jesus Christ on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of a holy God so God could be both just and the justifier. Of the ungodly. This is what the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. In justification, which is law court language. In redemption, which is slave market language. In atonement, which is temple language. And in propitiation, which is also temple language. Is that a magnificent salvation that is ours? You know what? It's available on only one basis. Four times in this section we are told it's through faith. Look at the bolded underlined section. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. He presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Both for covering and for appeasement. Through faith in his blood. Finally, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is appropriated by faith. And let me tell you something. It's not faith in faith. The 1969 New York Mets who won against 350 to 1 odds had a faith saying they made famous, you gotta believe. In what? Belief has no merit apart from the object. Faith in faith is meaningless. Faith in ideas is not enough. Although these ideas that I've expounded to you today are critical, faith in ideas do not give you righteousness by faith. It has to be in the person. But even the person, it cannot be general. There are all kinds of people who say they believe in Jesus. And there's nothing in their lives that shows they believe in him. No, no, no. It is believing some very specific things that Paul has revealed to us so far in Romans. It is specifically to believe that all of us have sinned. Because we have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. That we have looked to creatures, animate and inanimate. To give to us what only God promises to give. Significance and meaning in life. It is to acknowledge that all of us are guilty with our hands over our mouth in a law court. It is to acknowledge that we are captives and slaves to sin. It is to acknowledge that we have offended a holy God and are sentenced to wrath. It is to acknowledge that we are stained with sin. And therefore we need justification, we need redemption, we need atonement, we need propitiation. It is to acknowledge every single one of those things. It is to acknowledge that the law of God is totally incapable of doing those things for us. It is to acknowledge that the law can only show us how much we need a Savior. And then to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. Now, I don't know many of you here. You could be sitting in church for all your life. And I've never come to that point in your life where you say, this is it? I never knew it. But you know your heart. You know where you are. You might say, well, how do I come? How, how do I, what, what's the step I take to exercise this faith? There are a couple of ways in which we want to help you. First of all, if you happen to be visiting with us today, we have some packets that are specially prepared for you. Uh, one of them has a little booklet called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died. It just elaborates in much greater detail the significance of why Christ died. And secondly, because intellectual questions are a big issue for some people, that packet also has four sermons dealing with some of the key intellectual objections to the Christian faith. Hell, the problem of evil, uh, supposed contradictions and errors in the Bible, and you may want to pick those up and listen to those. And, and if you're interested in continuing to explore this afterwards, immediately after Easter for eight Wednesday nights in a row, uh, we have a small group study uh, called Encountering Jesus. If you're interested in something like that, you may want to sign up for that. That's certainly one way in which we can help you. A second way is to invite you to keep coming back for the Passion Week services and the Easter Sunday services, as Paul will continue to explain in Romans chapter 4. And we will look at it for the next two weeks. What justification by faith? How the Old Testament law truly says testified to that. But some of you may be ready today. And we'll kind of come to the communion table. And I want to tell you a story of a woman named Mary Poplin. Not Mary Poppins, but Mary Poppins. She was professor of education and dean of the School of Educational Studies at Claremont Graduate University. She attended a Methodist church as a child, but began searching other spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, transcendental meditation, and even telepathic attempts to bend spoons. I'm not sure what the particular spiritual significance of bending spoons is, but maybe some of you know more than I do. Uh, She began teaching at Claremont where a Christian friend encouraged her spiritual journey. She writes... I knew a graduate student who prayed for me for eight years. And he would say irritating things like, if you ever want to do anything with your spiritual life, I'd like to help you. That was irritating because I thought I was doing plenty with my spiritual life. You know, I was bending spoons. When he left, I had a dream. I was in a long line of people suspended in the air. The line seemed eternal on both ends. Jesus was standing greeting us in line. When I looked at Jesus, I fell down to his feet and started weeping. I felt total shame in every cell of my body. Then Jesus grabbed my shoulders and I felt total peace, like I had never felt in my life. I woke up and I was crying. So I go to the phone and I call this gentleman. He had never even told me that he was a Christian. But I called him and said, I think I need to talk to you about my spiritual life. We got together for dinner and he said to me, Why do you think you now have to do something with your spiritual life? And out of my mouth came something I never thought about. I have some black thing in my chest. I don't know what it is. If she was here last week, she would know it was a worm in the app. He just nodded and I told him the dream. I said, what do I do now? And he said, you have a Bible? He made sure I had one before we split up that night. And he said to me, you could read five Psalms a day in one chapter of Proverbs. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm really going to do it this time. And then he said, since Jesus was the one in your dream, you might even read the New Testament. I began to read them and we began to meet about once a week. Two months later, my mother wanted to go to North Carolina where she had grown up. We went to this little Methodist church, not because she was religious. She just wanted to see her friends. When we got there, I was really moved to go up to the altar and give my life to the Lord. It wasn't even an altar call. It was a communion service. And the guy up front said, you don't have to be a member of any church to take communion. You just believe that Jesus Christ lived, that he died for your sins. And we know what that means a lot more today. And you have to want him in your life. And when he said that, I was so powerfully moved that I actually thought, even if a tornado rips through this building, I'm going to get that communion. I knelt down and said, please come and get me. Please come and get me. Please come and get me. And when I took the communion and I said that, I felt free. You know, folks, it's as easy as that. Remember. It's not you taking the communion. It's Christ coming to take a hold of you. There's nothing magic in these elements. <laughs> the magic is in Jesus. The deep magic that Aslan talked about. And so as those elements are passed. And I have those who are helping us serve the community. If you can come to the front. As these elements are passed. We'd encourage you to take them. And if if you are saying today. I have an understanding of the death of Jesus. That I never had before. And if you are among those who are saying, I've never, I've never with this kind of understanding expressed faith in Christ. Join Mary Poplin and say, come and get me, Jesus. It's all about him coming to get you and me. As we were singing that last song and I asked asked the Lord for benediction, two words came to my mind. Health was the first word that came to my mind and then forgiveness was the second one. And that's what I want to bless you with today. Some of you need to forgive. Like Natalie said, break through to the point where you forgive those that hurt you. May God so bless you with the forgiveness of Christ. May He fill you with such a deep sense of gratitude for your own sins having been forgiven. That you will find a fresh grace and strength to forgive somebody who has hurt you that you've not forgiven so far. And may you break through to health because of that. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.